terms of individual success, not everybody's going to have all of those, all 10 points. If they do, some will be stronger than others. And the key is that team success is to ensure you surround yourself with people who mean that as a group, you tick every box. Welcome to the very first instalment of What Matters, a podcast series inspired by a book of the same name. It's a book that navigates one man's lifetime in business and investing. I'm your host, Adam Spencer, and as always, I'm joined by that man, the author of What Matters, chairman of the Sydney Swans and co-founder of Molus Australia, which now, of course, has been rebranded as MA Financial Group, Andrew Pridham. Chapter 23. Now, quick sidestep, Sydney Swans fans, 23, good number. To went Lance Franklin. Buddy Franklin, number 23. A sentimental bloke, the chapter's called. I don't know if that refers to Lance all that much. Is Lance that sentimental? Well, I think if it was sentimental, it would be Matthew Nix. Yeah. That's going to go over the head of anyone who's not That's one a Swans for, fan. For the real other nuffies. than Matthew Nix. But you call it a sentimental bloke, of course, also a great film. But I think you could, you could retitle this, this chapter In Praise of Grit. You talk about the characteristic common with most success being grit. Let's drill down to that. What do you mean by grit? I think many characteristics can lead to success. It can be intelligence. It can be hard work. It can be luck. Uh, it can be nice, clean shoes. There's all sorts of things that go into the, the recipe for success. But ultimately, I think the people who succeed the most are those who have grit. And grit to me means just that innate hunger and desire to succeed at whatever they're, they're doing. And that they will just go the extra yard, they'll just work harder, they'll do what they need to do at all times to achieve whatever they want to achieve. As you often do in this book, calling on your twin passions and, and areas of expertise, uh, business and, and you know, management of elite sport, you point out when it comes to the AFL industry, of all the players who ever make an AFL list, that means one of the AFL clubs says, we choose you to come and train with us and be part of us. Almost 40% of them play 10 or fewer games. And we should pause there to point out that that moment of, and by irony, we're recording this on the night of an AFL draft. So this is the night where clubs reach out and, and pick players to join. That moment of getting picked is a highlight and, and a mark of skill that puts you beyond 99% of all people who ever pick up a football and even show great talent in the sport. Yeah, we're not just talking to, to make a list is elite. 40% of those people play a handful or zero games. That is fascinating. Yeah. I think professional sports are great proxy for life because if you think of, I mean, you said 99%, it's probably 99.9 don't make it. If you think of any professional sport, whether it's football, tennis, cricket, golf, you think how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids play those sports. And to get to the position where you're a professional, you've gone through more than likely your entire childhood as the best at that sport, probably not just at your school, but in your suburb, your district, your local town. For many people, you're the best they've ever played against or alongside. The best. And you are you know, destined for professional sport and you're, you're elite. And the same can go for business where you, know, you might have won the university medal or you might have been very, very smart. 
So the people to get onto an AFL list or to become a professional tennis player, it doesn't matter what the sport is, they have experienced life. They've been brought up with the expectation, their own expectations themselves, that they will have a career in professional sport. They've got clearly got the skills because you don't get there if you don't have them. And one of the things that's really interesting is that there's a disproportionate number of very good AFL footballers who came into the game as rookies, which for those, the uninitiated, a rookie means that you haven't been um, drafted in the, in the primary draft, in the national draft, you've been selected, you've missed out on that. Sometimes they've missed out for multiple drafts and they've been rookied, so they come in and they basically get paid a bit less. I think they have to clean the floors, mm. uh, wash the windows, chairman's car. Still very handy players, still brilliant players compared to most people who ever Be- best kick a pl- football. Best player in their school, best player in their suburb, best player in their town. But in the AFL sense, almost a second choice. Didn't quite make it. Maybe there's something not, you know, maybe they've had an injury, maybe they're not tall enough, maybe they're not fast enough, whatever. But there's a disproportionate number of kids that come onto AFL lists as a rookie who become great players and end up playing 200 games. And that is because of, in my opinion, grit and that they've had to fight and scrape just that bit harder to get where they're at. Continuing this sporting analysis, you point out that even the very best have their moments. Don Bradman, for people who don't follow cricket, not just the best bat when you, you know, as a nerdy, as a nerdy maths guy who loves cricket, this is about as exciting as it gets for me. You draw the bell curve of all people who've played cricket and the average score they get every time they go out to bat. And it's a remarkable bell curve. If you average above 50 in cricket, you are elite. And then it drops off a cliff through the mid 50s, the high 50s. People might have heard of Steve Smith, current Australian superstar who averages in the low 60s. And give or take, that's the second highest average in the history of Test cricket. 50s elite. He's averaging 62. That's amazing. Don Bradman averages 99. It's, I read it the other day, 4.8 standard deviations above the average. It's like a kid scoring 140 out of 100 in an HSC. So it's, it's, it's a statistical blip, unmatched in any other sport. You can argue he's the greatest athlete in any sport ever. Got a duck almost one in every 10 times he walked out to bat. One in 10 times the Don walked out to bat. He tucked the bat under his arm walked back into what I presume was a very quiet dressing room, having scored zip. Greg Chappell, the great Greg Chappell, seven ducks in a row at one stage in his test cricket career. What does that tell you? We all have bad days. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't matter what you do in in life, whether it's sport or business or uh, the music industry, plenty of the, the Beatles and Queen, they've all got their lousy songs. And great artists have got lousy paintings. So no matter how good you are, you're not going to be good all of the time. And you have to accept that. And I think one of the things that grit brings is that determination that when you do fail, your own standards are, that's not acceptable. And you make sure next time if I got a duck, next time I'm going to go out there, I'm going to get a double century. And that's what Don Bradman clearly was very good at doing. There's a great story, and I, I, we'll, we'll move on from the sport in a moment, but I think it's quite illustrative. I was at a Sydney Swans event presenting the best and fairest players for the previous season, the awards, and someone spoke of one of the Swans' senior players and one of the new guys who'd won one of the best new talents. And this youngster had gone into training on a Monday and over the weekend one of the club's very best players 
had had a very average game. By the, the lofty standards he set himself, he'd, he'd not been good enough. And this kid was in the gym and on the training track next to this guy on that Monday. And he saw this guy flog himself in a way that he'd never seen someone. And, and it was a message to him of, this is the standard champion set. This is the, that's happened. I can't affect that anymore. How do I set myself for the game this week? And there, there was a beautiful message in how hard. It was Luke Parker, you know, co-captain of the Swans, pushed himself the, a couple of days after he knew he'd really not met his own lofty expectations. Yeah, I think no matter how much talent you have, it can only take you so far. And if you don't set those standards of yourself to always do your best and put the extra yard in, ultimately you're not going to succeed because failure is is often failure by a thousand cuts. It's just little things. You cut, start cutting a few corners. You don't do this. You don't. If it's sport, you don't turn up training. You don't train as hard. You think, oh, I won't run that extra kilometre. In business, it might be, you know, I won't. You know, I just, you know, I won't go to work today, or I just won't. You know, bother reading this report, I'll just wing. That meeting will look after itself. Yeah, I'll just wing. I'll send someone else along. And you can get away with that a little bit. And the more talent you've got, you can get away with it a little bit more. But if you truly want to be elite at anything and, and truly succeed and be a great leader in particular, you're setting an example not only to others but to yourself. And you have to push yourself so that you don't allow yourself to cut corners. On those days when you score the duck or don't have a great business meeting or whatever it is that you're going to say, well, I'm not going to let that ever happen again, and that you drive yourself in your own brain that that, that was not acceptable and you're going to do better. Just a quick stop during today's conversation because I wanted to remind you, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to learn more, you can head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to access your copy of the What Matters eBook, a book that navigates a lifetime of business and investing. That website again, mafinancial.com slash what matters. Now, back to the conversation. You talk about the importance of honesty and humility as a, as a, a factor here. We've spoken about it in other episodes of the podcast and without being facetious, you're, you are a modest person who's achieved a lot in the business world. And we wouldn't be here having this podcast if you hadn't had tremendous success across your professional career. What's your own relationship with grit? And can, can you think about times where you failed or, or things you've championed have not worked out or decisions have not gone the right way and what have you what do you observe and learn from that well adam i think my personal greatness and success is only overshadowed by my humility yes and uh no i i think that look there's, there's... if we pause for a second to think about how amazing you are yeah you're quite humble it won't be long <laughs> no look we all have we all have plenty of failures and and i'm a you know i've had many failures in life and we all have you know you're kidding yourself if you if you don't think you have and, and we're only minutes away from the next one and you know I, I talk a lot about paranoia for example and the role that that plays in success in that if you have that paranoia that you know you really hate the feeling of failing and you know what it's like when you watch your football team coming back to football the difference in how you feel personally after a great win versus a, a loss it's just chalk and cheese. I read someone on, the, someone on the weekend, I was listening to a sporting podcast saying, it is quite bizarre that we as rational human beings will invest in a group of 20-odd people who we may vaguely know but don't know, and we have no effect on how well they can do their job. But my state of mind for most of the week after will directly correlate with how well 22 other guys did or did not do their job between 5.30 and 7.30 last Saturday. Correct. And I will just put my fate in, in, in the hands of that God. 
it's true in that a, a coach like a CEO after a win is the best best coach in the world and their contract secured forever. And after a couple of bad losses, it, th- it gets shaky pretty quick. And yeah. if you're in any elite endeavour, whether it's business or sport, um, you're there to, to deliver returns and to achieve. And if, if you don't achieve for long enough, eventually you're not going to be there and you shouldn't be there and you're going to fail. And the, one of the things that really drives you to make sure and you do is that you know, you're just paranoid that you, you want to keep being successful and have that feeling of success. And when it doesn't come, you, you're honest with yourself and you really analyse why did I fail and don't just, you know, go, oh, was, you know, I was unlucky or this happened or that happened. Be really honest with yourself and say, I didn't do this well enough and I'm going to improve next time. And that can come across if you're in a leadership position as being quite harsh with people that you work with, for example, and at times I might where you know, I will give very direct feedback if we as a team are unsuccessful and something I've learned from sport, I think you owe it to yourself and, and to those that you work with to say, we failed or you failed at this, Adam, because you didn't do this, this and this and it's not good enough and you need to focus on doing this, this and this and have that adult discussion. I think if you can have that and get over the, the desire to always be talking yourself up and, and feel good about yourself, then you can move forward and get better. Is it simply something you're born with, you have it or you don't? Or can, when you're talking about those learnings of saying to someone, let's look at why that didn't work and did you let yourself down and could you have worked out it? Can you help people develop their own inner grit? Absolutely. And I think particularly when, when people are you know, relatively young in, in whatever their career is, um, there is time to improve and get better. And you see that in all sorts of in all sorts of things. And you know, I like to think of myself and, you know, I say one of the, you know, I got asked once, what do you aim for in life and what are you most proud of? And I, one of the things I say I aim for and I'm most proud of is I genuinely sit down and say, I want to be a better person and better at what I do next year than I was this year. I say that every year. I haven't done it yet, but eventually <laughs> I will. <laughs> you, you go through the, the success cake, the top 10 ingredients for the success cake, and we won't go through all of them, but grit, Hard work, energy, and enthusiasm sits at number two. I think people would understand the importance of hard work, a desire and a capacity to learn, optimism, attention to detail, honesty, humility, great mentors, vision, kindness, and luck. Let's drill down into a couple of these. Attention to detail is an interesting one because I would imagine for some leaders, you talk about the visionary here, attention to detail is probably not probably not the, the, the strongest card in the hand, how do you balance that for people if, they, if that's not their, their natural state? In terms of individual success, not everybody's going to have all of those, all, sort of 10. It, all 10 points. If they do, some will be stronger than others. And the, the key is a, as a team for success is to ensure you surround yourself with people who mean that as a group, you tick every box and you've got, you know, hopefully high performing people with every one of those skills. So if you're a if you're a budding entrepreneur who's a visionary and you're full of optimism and nothing can ever go wrong and you don't have attention to detail and you try and do things yourself, you will fail because you'll miss, you won't bother about the detail. You won't be interested in it. You'll focus on you know, the, the end prize and how, how we're going to get from A to B. You need to have somebody in your team who is the one that's focusing on every bit of detail and saying, hang on, hang on. You know, I know it's all going to be great and we're going to dominate the world, but... Uh, we actually haven't got a license to do this yet. We might <laughs> want to go and fill out a few forms. And, Someone who's and a little bit it. on the OCD side? A little bit. 
someone that's just can focus on it and ensure that they're just you know making clearing the path for the you know the people who are on the horse at the front of the front of the race. You mentioned the O word optimism, and it's an interesting point because you think that most successful people are biased to the positive. Why is that? And you say it feeds back in in some ways. It, it helps propel grit. I think it's really difficult to be an effective leader if you're not an optimist. Because I think people who are pessimistic, um, firstly, they're just by nature, they're not going to try new things with great gusto. They're going to always be thinking about the risks and what can go wrong. And uh, and therefore, they'll be very cautious about doing anything. Whereas an optimist is saying, yeah, that can go wrong, whatever. I'm going to do this, I'll do that. I think it's it, it's very important. And it also optimism, importantly, gives very positive energy to people around you. And if you're optimistic, you can lift people and, and, and make them feel we can achieve anything, we can overcome anything, no matter what you know our handicap might be, we can we can do this. Um, where if you're a pessimist, no one likes being led by a pessimist who's gonna say, Oh, we'll probably lose this game and you know, I don't know why we bother turning up, they're much better than us. And it's not a great outlook, is it? <laughs> you talk about the uh the, the glass half full. I, I like to think that some people are glass half empty, some are glass half full. I'm more a who the hell has been touching my glass type of guy. Um, honesty and humility you refer to as best mates. Treating people with fairness and honesty, having little interest in self-promotion, considered highly desirable traits in anyone. You've discussed about this before. Why is honesty and humility so important? I thought a lot about this, and I find it very difficult to s- distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. And I think that if, if, you're, if you're to be honest, you need to have humility. Right? You, you need to be honest with yourself, and that then leads to kindness and fairness and all sorts of other things. And I, I think they're, they're fundamental traits. You know, my experience, people who are arrogant or very harsh with people, they have such confidence in their own abilities that they, they haven't got humility. Then, you know, I think it's very hard for them to, uh, to be great leaders as well. Is it a cultural thing? Because you've worked with people around the world, and I've observed, again, in, in, in the sporting realm, there seems to be a culture, say between Australia and the United States. As an Australian tennis player, you could win Wimbledon for the fifth year in a row, cementing yourself as the world's number one ranked player for having broken the length of time that anyone's ever held that position. And if at the post-press match conference you said, I was pretty good today, Australians would go, okay, back in your box, wanker, pull your head in. Whereas an American, you can win something at at a minor state level and go, have you seen the car I drive? Have you, could you imagine what it's like? Have you seen my watch? Look at this watch. Who are, The Spence owns this watch. This is the Spence's watch. You're living in my world. Is, it, is, is there a cultural difference around? It's simplicity, but you, you hear about those, the old, the alpha male A leader who is, who, you, you don't associate humility necessarily with them. There's a significant cultural difference between countries. And I've worked you know, extensively in the United States and the UK and in Asia, Australia, obviously. There's a big difference culturally in, in all of these countries and the way the people are. And you're right, in, in America, I mean, I, I think it's often uh, talked about, you know, in, in America, if there's a train wreck, for example, someone will come out of the train wreck, their clothes still burning, they'll be bloodied, and the, you know, the TV, CNN will come up and put a microphone under their, their mouth, and they'll give a fantastic oratory of exactly what happened, and they'll sound very impressive, yeah. and you think, wow. <laughs> It sounds like they've rehearsed it. Yeah. In Australia, you can have somebody who's just won the Nobel you know, Prize and they'll sound like you know, yeah. Kev from down at the pub. Yeah. 
And so you have... You Got to thank the boys in the lab, they gave 110%. Yeah, they were great, they were great. And the blokes, you know, doing it, you know, cleaning, they're good, mate. There is a big cultural difference and we all react differently based on our upbringings and our beliefs. And certainly in Australia, I think humility, people value it greatly and they are more likely to have warmth towards someone who they, they feel has got humility. And someone that's got excessive bravado and confidence, I think, turns us off. Whereas mm. in America, it can be a very different signal of, you know, it's the tall poppy syndrome here in America. It's, it's celebrating someone that's had great success. With vision, you make an interesting point because we've spoken in other episodes of the podcast about the importance of business plans, strategic plans, what those things are, how, in, how important they are. You say vision here as a category in the success cake. Vision is far more important than a business plan or strategic plan. I would imagine a lot of people in business would confuse those, that having a really good business plan is vision. Having a really good strategic plan is vision. What do you mean by vision in a way that it's more important than a business or strategic plan? A business plan is something I always think of. They can be important, don't don't misunderstand me. Um, but a business plan is something that's typed up on a computer and printed out on paper and sits on your desk or in a drawer. Vision is something that it's in your spirit. You take it home with you every day. When you get on the bus, when you're on holidays, you're at the beach, whatever you're doing, if you've got vision, it's in you and, and, you're, and you're thinking about it, you're dreaming about it, and it's very different than a business plan that's been put together. It's got lots of, you know, everyone puts together the same words, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, this is how we're going to do it. But if you've got real vision and drive, I'd, I'd take that any day over a business plan. Kindness. Not compulsory. You know that many people who are quite successful in business, sport, all sorts of endeavours do lack kindness. But if you want to enjoy your success, there needs to be kindness that accompanies it. Yeah. I, I struggle with whether kindness fits on the, on the list of ingredients mm. for success because I know many successful people who have no kindness in them whatsoever. Yeah. So it's, it's the one characteristic I thought, maybe this doesn't belong, but I put it in anyway because it's my so, book. It's my so, book, so I'm so, going to put it in. <laughs> but some who almost, in my experience, acknowledge almost celebrate their own lack of kindness. Some people are unbelievably unkind, and they do. They think it's, it shows strength and toughness, and if there's a chance to take a dollar from you and it's a dollar more for them, they'll do it. And if there's a chance to fire somebody because they can hire somebody two cents cheaper, they'll do it, right? You know, I, don't, I just think it's not a great trait for success because if you don't enjoy what you're doing and those around you don't enjoy it, and you're not kind, you're not going to be, you're not going to have humility, I don't think, if you're not kind. You're not going to have loyalty if you're not kind. And kindness is just something, decency is another word for it. And I think it's, to me, it's really, really important that if you're going to be successful and enjoy success, that you have kindness in your spirit. Let's say you've got the correct you know, mix of those ingredients in yourself or a team, you've baked the success cake. You make a really important point that even if you've got the success cake baked, ready to go, you have to eventually sell that cake to someone. You quote no less than Woody Allen, showing up. Showing up is 80% of life. Sometimes it's easy to hide home in bed. Trust me, I've done both, is what Woody Allen says. What do you mean about you have to show up and sell the success cake? Showing up is so important because it's easy to talk. And a lot of people, we all know them, they've got big dreams, 
they've got business plans, they've got financial models, they've got, they've got it all, but they never actually get started. And they, they sit around and I can only presume later in life they sit there, you know, having a cup of tea and they think, if only if I'd have done any of that stuff, it would have been really good. So getting started is very, very important and, and it's not easy to do. It's the reason why most people don't do it because it's easy to have a job, get paid a salary, just turn up, you know, enjoy life, have friends, and that's fine. But if, if you're really striving for success at something, you have to put yourself out there and you have to take risks. And, and being a risk taker is essential in life if you're going to be a high achiever. And so you've got to turn up. Hope you're enjoying the What Matters podcast as much as we're enjoying bringing it to you. Across the series, you'll pick up many great tips on how to be successful as a leader, as a business mind, as a person. In our next episode, we'll teach you how to invest like a professional. Andrew and MA Financial guru John Garrett sit down and talk about the secrets to investing. And Andrew acknowledges that making money is not easy. It involves a lot of things going right. I've got a really good analogy which can help people understand okay. compounding. Oh, you do. And I do. And it's a 2020 example in that from one bat with COVID-19 or the coronavirus as originally was called, hundreds of millions of people have been impacted, billions of people impacted by COVID-19. And that's the power of compounding. It can start with one and exponentially. I, I know you don't know much about mathematics, Adam, <laughs> but it's, it's actually extraordinary. And in the book, What Matters, to give it a plug, I actually show some studies that have been done which show the, the power of compounding. And it, it's extraordinary. And if people understand it, they'll understand why you shouldn't aim to get rich quick. You should aim to get rich slowly. That's episode two of What Matters, How to Invest Like a Professional. Make sure you check it out. Now, back to our conversation. You talk about the example of, of the formation of Mollus in Australia in 2009, and the most common comment from media and people external to the business was, as an outsider, I think they were making a fair point here, why would you start an investment bank during the global financial crisis? Now, I'm no fancy pants business type, I can see some merit in asking that question, but you, you did show up and you did sell it. What, do you, what are your recollections of that time? Well, I could have 2020 hindsight and I could say that, you know, I thought that starting an investment banking business in a global financial crisis is the perfect time. It wasn't that at all. It was, that was just the time. The time was open to do it. I had the time. I was sitting around doing nothing so with some, with some friends. So you, you make the most of, your, of the environment and the circumstances you're in and I didn't see, and my partners didn't see any particular barrier to being successful because we were in a global financial crisis. And you have to look at it and say, well, yeah, there's risks. There's always risks. There's risk getting out of bed in the morning. But the reality is that if you look at, okay, well, what are the advantages of starting a business during a global financial crisis? And hopefully no one has to do it for another 100 years, uh, maybe hopefully never again. But what are the advantages? Well, one of the advantages was that when there's turmoil, if you're in the business of giving advice, corporate advice, funnily enough, turmoil is when people want your advice the most. Mm -hmm. So well, that's a positive. We're a people business. We need to hire people and good people. Well, all of the competitors in the market were suffering. And so they were firing people or people were unhappy. So we could hire people because they were coming. So you, could, you look at the positives and you latch onto those and you ignore the negatives and you just close your eyes, grit your teeth, and hope it works. When it comes to grit, and we've talked about some of those ingredients in the success cake, that initial small team you started Mollus with, 
must have ranked fairly high, I'm guessing, on grit and optimism in particular of, of ingredients we've touched on so far. Absolutely. I mean, uh, my co-founders in the business, excluding someone like Ken Molas, who's got more optimism and grit than, uh, than I'll ever have. But you know, people like two of the partners now, joint CEOs of the business, Julian Biggins and Chris White, I would say, I mean, they're, they're younger than me, not a lot, a little bit. Um, they, that's a joke. And <laughs> they, they, I would say to you that at the time we started the business and before that even, they had too much optimism. And I was probably the slightly the pessimist, sort of the handbrake a little bit, you know, a bit, bit more cautious, bit a bit, 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 maybe, maybe realist, but but just a bit more cautious and saying, well, hang on, it's not going to be that easy, and these are the things we have to think about, and a um, bit more measured maybe, and that's experience gives you that but to blend optimism with being measured and, and realism, it's probably the right word you used. And but they, you know, clearly they were more entrepreneurs than me because I wouldn't have done it unless they wanted to do it and they did it and we, you know, we were very close and they wanted to do it and they sort of talked me into it. So they really are the, the entrepreneurs and the optimists. You say in closing that the sentimental bloke would always choose success in a team sport above that of an individual sport. Why is that? I think that's as a uh, frustrated tennis player, mm-hmm. and I, so I spent a lot of time playing tennis as a kid. And I also love playing football. Objectively, how'd you go? Were you all right? Well, it's all right. It was obviously wasn't very good. I'm an investment banker, uh, but I was probably better. Well, not probably. I was better at tennis than football. Mm-hmm. And what were your strengths? Serve, volley, shaking hands at the end. I was right. quite good at that. <laughs> Jumping the net, making the Robinsons barley water, or whatever it was. <laughs> but no, I I always got, despite being better at, at tennis and football, I always got far more enjoyment out of football because I, mm. I love the training. I love being around, you know, friends, uh, the physicality of it, but just the whole team atmosphere, which is what I've carried on in, in, in my involvement with the Sydney Swans. Mm. I love the team environment. I just think it gives you so much. Whereas tennis, I found, whilst I was, enjoyed it, it was a lot less fulfilling, more, it's, it's a bit more soulless in that you're a sole trader, you're an individual. Mm. If you're playing singles, you're out in the court on your own, it's up to you, you've got no one to really, no one to talk to. It's by definition, a solitary pursuit. It is, and it, it's, you know, if you'd win something at the end, you'd be, you know, hip hip hooray me, mm. and you'd look around and there'd be no one there. Um, whereas at footy, if you win a game, it's, it's a team environment, it's uplifting, and I think the same goes in business and my, um, I guess the great enjoyment I've had in so certainly at Molus and in business generally, it's, you know, the success is great and everything it, it, it leads to is great, but the, the friendships you, you build and watching people mm. develop and thrive and the success they have actually gives you a real kick, gives me a real kick. And I, I just think that's one of the, the great secrets of business generally is if, you, if you're working in a team environment as opposed to being some superstar entrepreneur who doesn't have anyone around them, um, possibly without kindness and uh, mm. they're, they're just in it for themselves. I think it's pretty lonely. I think it's great being around people and, and, and sharing success. We started talking statistics about football and let's finish with football because, you know, having both been associated with the Swans during a comparatively successful period, we've been lucky enough to know people who've won premierships, the ultimate goal in football to win that grand final. And yes, and you do hear almost exclusively people who've had that level of success will say that 
any individual accolade they've picked up in the time that they've played sport, any individual award, best this, best that, best this in the entire competition, when they get together every 10 years with the group of colleagues that they won the grand final with and sit back and reflect on that moment, that just brings a degree of, of wholeness and, and fulfilment that no individual moment seems to be able to do. Absolutely. And I think anyone who genuinely enjoys or, or um, takes more pride in individual success than team success, I think has some sort of narcissistic tendencies because surely it's better to succeed as a team and in a team and share that with others because um, it can be just, just as rewarding financially as, it, as, it, as succeeding individually. Uh, I see no great joy in being able to say, well, I did this, I succeeded all on my own. I didn't need anyone else to succeed. And I challenge anybody who can tell you that their success in life, even if even if they're the best golfer in the world, and it's it's purely of clearly as you know, we've got a caddy, I guess. But if they've genuinely felt they've done it all on their own, they're kidding themselves because they've had coaches, parents, a lot of people to help them get there, and and that's I guess the essence of of being grounded. I think that's the perfect note on which to wrap up this podcast. We should go to a room, get in a circle, just the two of us, sing the molas. What Matters team song and then just throw Gatorade on each other. Well, with your shirt, Adam, which people listening to this can't see, you wouldn't notice you'd thrown Gatorade on it. We might wrap it there. Thank you, Andrew Pritham. <laughs> Thank you for joining today's episode of What Matters. And don't forget, head to the website mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to download your copy of the book. Be sure to subscribe to What Matters and join us next time with special guest John Garrett. John is Managing Director at MA Financial Group and he will share his secrets on how to really make money investing.